As we stand in this sanctuary today, I invite you to take your worship guide with me and find in that far top left corner the text of scripture that is printed, Exodus 5-2. Today we'll re-enter the Moses story at Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. When you found that, right under the welcome to worship line, would you just smile at me and wave? Well, there you go. Would you join me and read with heart the word of the Lord? The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God and I will exalt him. Let's pray together. Our good and our holy Lord, we thank you on this Lord's day that you are our salvation. We thank you, God, that you are our strength, that you are our song. We thank you for the power of your grace that delivers. We thank you for your spirit that sustains and strengthens us in life. Lord, today we are glad that we can stand and bear witness to those who do not know you and say from the bottom of our hearts on the authority of your word that you are a God that saves and that you are a God that strengthens and that you are a God that can be the source of life and joy. Lord, as we open your word together today, we come with, with hearts that are hungry. And so, Lord, we ask you to make them tender, that they would be like fertile soil, that your word would be like a, a seed. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. God, we pray that you would make our hands strong, that our work in this world would be like your very own. And God, we pray that a word of hope and life would be found on our tongues. This is our prayer in the beautiful, matchless name of Jesus. We pray together saying, amen and amen. Please be seated. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Years ago, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee said, if, if i given the opportunity to listen to your songs, I will know your theology. If I can listen to your songs, if I can hear you pray, I know what you believe about God. And what we have in this passage of Scripture, this, this is after the great deliverance from the sea. We have Moses and Miriam teaching God's people to sing. And in teaching them, and, and that mixed multitude that, that walked out of captivity in Egypt, that, that were delivered by the hand of a mighty God, uh, we have a song that is, that is to God and a song that is about God, a song that is teaching them about the God who has become their salvation and a God who wants to be their strength and their song. 
They'd just been delivered by a mighty hand. We, we were there last week. We saw the cycle of the plagues as God worked to, to loosen the grip of the Egyptian masters. We saw the, the lamb slain and the blood placed on the door, and we saw that Passover night. We, we saw the, the, the deliverance of God's, of God's people. We saw them camping, and we saw Moses teaching them that, that this Passover would be for generations and generations, that this unleavened bread would be a witness from, the, from this day forever as God's people would gather to commemorate and remember his outstretched hand, his mighty deliverance. And, and they were told that the foreigners who were living among you, they could come to the feast, they could come to the table provided they, uh, their males were circumcised. The, the wideness of God's mercy and the particularity of his covenant all coming together. And then after they were instructed, the horses of the Egyptians started to thunder in the sand again. And the sea was before them and an army was behind them. And immediately they said, why don't we just go on back? And they started to bark at Moses. Moses, you brought us out here for this. And they looked facing the sea. And they felt the breath of the riders. They were in a bind. And God made a way where there was no way. See, it wasn't just a body of water that was before them. It, it, it was their very weakness and their inability. Uh, it, before them was chaos and brokenness. You see, in the Jewish mind, the sea was not just water. The sea was a, a, a picture of life, chaotic. Life, not as God would have it. Life filled with sin and brokenness. There aren't very many famous Jewish sea shanties. Jewish people were not seafarers. In fact, when, when Solomon made a little money and wanted to have some ships like everybody else, oh, he bought the ships. But then he subcontracted out the sailing of these vessels to the Phoenicians. He got a bunch of boats. He says, I know a guy down in Lebanon. Hey, hey can, you, can you run my boats? Yeah, I can run your boats. And that's how it went. No Jew ever has sung son of a son of a sailor. The sea, not their thing, not their thing. And here they were, the Hebrews standing, facing in the eyes of the sea. And on the other side of the sea, when God made a way out of no way, when God was victorious, not, over, not only over against the enemy, but against the sea, Moses taught them a song. And it was a song of salvation and sustenance. And this song is sung in every generation that follows. This song, this song runs like a thread throughout the entire Bible. When you come to the, to the final pages of Scripture, the final chapters of the Bible, you read something phenomenal in Revelation chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Pay careful attention to these words. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. 
And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been made manifest. The last scenes the Bible. They stand as victors on the sea. And they sing the song of servant Moses. And they sing the song of the Lamb. For God's glory has been made manifest. Moses' song, Miriam's song, the song of the Lamb. It's the song of everyone who knows and loves God. And when you hear this song... When you hear us singing it, you know what we truly believe. And what we affirm as followers of Christ is that the Lamb is the Savior, and the Lamb is our strength, and the Lamb is our song. And this gives us a unique identity. Walter Brueggemann called it an odd baptismal identity, that we were brought up out of a watery grave, made alive by his grace, to walk in his strength in the newness of life. This is our God, and this is our identity as we sing to and worship a God of salvation and sustenance, a God of deliverance and strength and joy. Nowhere is this seen more clearly in all of the Bible than in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This morning, I want us to focus on 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. Because in this text, Paul addresses the Corinthians, and he wants them to think about what life is like on the other side of the sea. Having named the name of Christ, having affirmed those things that we affirmed in song this morning, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the resurrection. Having come through the watery grave of baptism, snatched up alive and told to walk in the newness of life, the Corinthian church is standing on the other side of the sea. And Paul was writing them to say, now this is what you should do. And the question that sits before us today is, for those of us who has passed through the sea, what should we do? And today I suggest there's four things that come from this text. And I want you to listen for them as we read the text. We are to live and learn and lean and light out. Live and learn and lean and light out. Live and learn and lead and light out. Let's say those together. Live, learn, lean, light out. We are to live for the pleasure of God. We are to learn from our spiritual ancestors. We are to lean on the Lord. And we are to light out from the worship of idols. Now let's see if we can identify those as we read this text from Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Let's say that together. God is faithful. God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Quite a text. One of the most complete treatments of the Exodus and the wandering story in all of the New Testament. It's like the Sparks Notes version of the Moses materials, the Cliff Notes version of, of the whole thing. And, and standing out at the top of it, how shall we live since we've passed through the sea? Since we name Christ as our Savior, what should we do? First, we should live for God's pleasure. Verse 5, this warning went out that, that with many of them, God was not pleased. This past week, we hosted for Baylor and Truett Seminary uh, intense study of, of Romans chapter 8 with N.T. Wright here in this room. And it was a wonderful time to be with friends, uh, ministers from around the country that, that we, we know and love and care about. It was a wonderful time studying scripture together. There was a throwaway line that Professor Wright used that just went down deep into the marrow of my bones. He was teaching on Romans 8, verse 8, and, and Romans 8, verse 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And he, and he said it almost as, a, almost as an aside, almost like he was chasing a rabbit. He just stopped, and he said, implicit in this is the possibility, is the opportunity to please the Lord. He said, listen, he says, if we are filled with God's spirit, of course we can please God. And we don't need to be shy about this. After 45 years of life and 20 some odd years of being a pastor, I have a pretty robust doctrine of sin. <laughs> if I wasn't a Christian, I'd probably be a nihilist. I mean, I understand sin, and I understand mine, and I certainly understand yours. I, I get sin. And sometimes having a robust doctrine of sin can lead you almost to a, to a place of paralysis where you just say, there's just not a thing 
on earth that we can do. Yet, yet there is. For those that are tabernacles of the spirit of the living God, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, there is in that hope the possibility that we can number our days in such a way that we bring pleasure to the Lord. Years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and a pastor from Baton Rouge was there, and it was during the days where everybody felt like they had to do something creative or it didn't count as a sermon. And at the end of this guy's sermon, he, he scattered little smiley face stickers all on the front of the church, and he had the pastors come down and get the stickers. And he said, I, I want you to remember that you were to live for the pleasure of God. As a 20-something-year-old pastor, I thought it was goofy. I thought it was silly. I thought it was some shtick. But I got my sticker dutifully because I'm a rule follower to some degree, and I put it in the front of a Bible. And I tell you what, every time I pull that Bible down, I see two things on the front page. I see Molly Catherine's handprint when she was a little bitty kid because she traced it with a pencil sitting in a pew. And I see that sticker. And I'm reminded. I'm reminded that there is a call for those of us who have passed through the sea to live our life for the pleasure of the Lord. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. God takes great pleasure in us taking pleasure in him. Walking the path of life that he lays out before us. Living for his glory. What should we do when we pass through the sea? We should live for the pleasure of God. Secondly, we should learn, learn from our, our ancestors. Paul, when he wrote the Corinthians, he called them brothers and he spoke of the fathers. In many of our translations, it rightly renders it brothers and sisters and ancestors. He, he's calling them in to a, to a family situation. He's writing to people who are, are pagan backgrounds, who have come to faith in Christ. And he writes to them as sisters and brothers, him a faithful Jew. And he's, they've been engrafted into the life of the promise. And he spoke to them of the fathers in the faith. Those fathers were their fathers too because their allegiance to Jesus and we have to live a life that stands on the shoulders of the fathers and the mothers and learns from the example of our spiritual ancestors. And some of those examples are positive, and some are not. Let's start in the Exodus story with the positive one. The oddest thing is, is recorded in Exodus 13, 19. Exodus 13, 19, it says, when they come out, of, of, their, of, their, of their captivity, when they come out and they head toward the place where God is sending them, they take with them the bones of Joseph. They, they haul out Joseph's embalmed, mummified self. They go and get Joseph and bring him with them. So when they're going, when they've got the cattle, they've got the kids, they've got the people, they've got the stuff, they also have in their possession the bones of Joseph. Why'd they do that? Were they just being weird? Was there not enough room in Egypt to bury bodies? They did that because we are called into a life, a common life with God. And we're called into the common life of a God 
that makes and keeps promises. Listen to how Genesis, the book of Genesis, ends. This is Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, and he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you. And bring you out of this land to a land to which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis closes with the God of a promise making a promise through Joseph that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will visit you and take you to a place of promise. And when he does, you take my bones with you. Those Corinthian Christians, those Texan Christians, 21st century, been called into a family. And our fathers, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. It's not all about me, myself, and I, and Irene. It's about the family of God. And we need to learn to think beyond the self. We need to learn to think communally, family life, even institutionally. Hugh Hecto in a book on, called On Institutional Thinking says that people who think larger than themselves, think institutionally, they take delivery of something of immense importance. When they took those bones of Joseph in their arms, they were taking into their very lives, into delivery, something of immense importance. A witness to the promise of God. Martin Luther said there is only one faith and one God, the one who makes promises. This is why Robert Jensen said God is the one who raised Jesus. We don't begin with some generic concept, God. We begin with the one who raised Jesus. We begin with the one who says, my name is I am. I will be known by my deeds in this earth. Tell them I am sent you. And I am is the one that was the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am was the one who spoke through Joseph and said, he's coming for you and he's taking you out. And when he does, you take my bones with you. What do we do on the other side of the sea? We learn from our ancestors that God is a God who makes and keeps his promises. But we also learn from them the sober lessons that come from the cautionary tales of their failures. And that wilderness generation, the one that came up, most didn't go in because their hearts were far. And they taught us how to grumble. And God disciplined them by sending snakes into the camp at their grumbling. And Moses cried out, and God said to Moses, he, he said, place a serpent on a staff and put it before them. And those who repent and turn and look on that serpent, they will be made whole. They will be healed. And Jesus, many years later, would look at Nicodemus and said, just as 
Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. You see, God loves the ungrateful. And he provides even for the grumblers. But we need to learn from their example not to grumble, but to have in our heart a sanctified contentment that says the Lord is life. He is our song and he is our strength. They set a negative example for idolatry. (laughs) Moses is going up and receiving the documents of the covenant. And we'll talk about this next Sunday. And when he comes down the hill, he says, I hear a song of singing. It's not a victory song I hear. It's not a song of defeat I hear. I hear party songs play. He's coming down with the covenant. And it sounds like a rave in an Eastern European discotheque. He heard the song of partying. Because they were questioning, why has why is he gone so long? What's he doing? Where do we go? What is it? And the discontented heart led them to very literally craft an idol. Every idol is the same. Every idol is the same. Different names, different shapes, different forms, but every idol is the same. It's the fearful worship of the self. Our lesson, not to forget. He said, these were examples to you. He said, heed them. We often have warning lights come on on our dashboard. Do they make you nervous when you see them? I mean, it pop on everybody's. They, they, they just really work me up. You know what would be a dumb thing to do? Take a piece of black electrical tape and just cover it up. You know how I know that's dumb? I've tried it. <laughs> that's not how they're to work. So what do we do on the other side of the sea? What do we do? We live for God's pleasure. We learn from our ancestors. We lean on God. And that begins with humility. We humble ourselves under his mighty hand that he might lift us up. And this is how Paul talked about the humility side of it. He said, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Were you taught how to walk in an attic when you were a kid? Walk only on the joys. Don't walk here because that's plaster or that's sheetrock. If you put your weight there, you'll fall right through. And we all saw Chevy Chase do it at Christmas time. I remember one time I, I thought I'd learned that lesson. I mean, my dad, had, he just preached that years after years after years after years. And uh, we, we started a Bible study for college students by the church I was serving. And uh, we needed to make some space. I went up in the attic of the church, and we were moving stuff up there. And, and, and I was walking through the attic. So, you know, like I'd always done, I could just kind of do it because I'd done it all my life. Don't even have to think about it anymore. It's second nature. It's muscle memory. So confident in the way I walked in the attic because my daddy taught me how to walk in an attic. And there was particle board, and an air conditioning unit had been dripping on it for about three years. It wasn't plaster. It wasn't sheetrock. It was particle board. But when I stood on that, uh, I made a real quick trip into the youth room below. <laughs> it was nasty. I'd gotten overconfident. I was standing, but I was swaggering as I stood, and I fell. 
I fell. Listen, God brings us out to take us in. But as we walk with him in this world, we need to walk lightly in this world. And we need to walk with humility in this world. Because pride always seems to hasten the fall. So we humble ourselves. But listen, to lean on the Lord, to trust in God, it's not just to walk in humility, but it's to walk in faith. The three greatest words in this text about God's strength and provision for our sanctification is in verse 13. God is faithful. Listen to me. God has promised never to leave you or forsake you. And the God that raised Jesus keeps his promises. So on the other side of the sea, we should lean on God. And the last one, we should light out from idolatry. Many of your Bibles render verse 14 something like flee idolatry or shun idolatry. We don't often use those words. We don't talk about shunning unless we're telling a story about the Amish. We don't use the word flee unless it's the evening news and somebody has fled the scene. But where I grew up, we lit out from a lot of things. Like, he lit out like his hair was on fire. When you light out, you get, right? Anybody grow up lighting out from places? I mean, and so the text would be rendered in the Snowden translation, light out from the worship of idolatry. Leave it be, set it aside. This is the great lesson of 1 Corinthians 10. This is the abiding lesson of the wilderness generation. Flee idolatry and cling to the Lord. They were tempted to table with demons and pagan idols. And he was saying, turn away from that, light out from that, run as fast as you can. Because God is God and you are his. And you wear an odd baptismal identity. You've been brought out of that sea and you'll stand upon it. And you as the victor of the Lord's, you are not to table with the demons. Light out from it. Run away. Psalm 16, 4 says, Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. And you say, Matt, I've never worshipped another God. Huh. Okay. <laughs> okay. A God is really anything you love more than the Lord. I've bowed my knee before lesser gods. And I'm a betting man, so I'm willing to bet you have too. And doesn't it just multiply our sorrows? Life is hard. That's just a given. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. I give you my peace. But so often we make it harder by crafting and worshiping gods of our own choosing and control. Sunday night service many, many years ago, I was preaching through a text of scripture and is that one about how God takes our struggles and our hardships and our sorrows and, and, and he works in the midst of our life to give us patience and to, to make us holy and to make us more like Jesus. And I was talking about how God, how God takes up all that stuff and how he works in our life for his glory. And after the service, one of my favorite 
church members. A guy named George Cody, he was a farmer, catfish farmer. I mean, big operation, making, growing catfish. Uh, he comes up to me after the service. He said, now, Matt, he says, you got to be really, really careful when you teach about hardship and struggle and what God does with it. He goes, I believe everything you said tonight. He said, but you also got to emphasize the other side of that. I said, well, Mr. George, what's the other side of that? He said, son, you ought to learn this early in life. He said, the other side of that is that most of my wounds are self-inflicted. He goes, and I suspect most of yours will be too. God loves us so much. He wants us to avoid all those self-inflicted wounds. Because sorrow is multiplied when we hasten after other gods. So we should light out and cling to him who clings to us. Have you crossed the river? Has there ever been the season in your life where you've recognized that he has made a way where there was no way? Have you placed your faith and your trust in the saving kindness of the Lamb of God? not you can do that today you can do it while we stand and sing if you have and so many of us have the question before us all today is how are we living on the other side of the sea are we living for the pleasure of the Lord are we learning from our spiritual ancestors knowing that we're part of a spiritual family are we leaning on the Lord are we lighting out from idolatry There's so many ways the Spirit of God might apply this message to your particular situation, your particular season, your particular life. Whatever God's doing in your life, would you open yourself up completely and totally to the work of the Spirit and let the living God, who is your Savior, be your sucker, be your strength, and be your song. Will you do that as we stand and sing today, as we sing to the Lord? Andy, come and lead us.